This is the Bartender Journey Podcast. It's the Bartender Journey Podcast number 246. My name is Brian Vincent Weber. Thanks for listening. This is the podcast that talks all about bartending and cocktails and spirits. Well, today we talk with Adam Seeger. He's the chief bartender and corporate sommelier at IPIC Theaters and the Tuck Hospitality Group. Upstairs from the IPIC Theater at the South Street Seaport in Lower Manhattan is the Tuck Room. He invited Hazel and myself back to the secret room behind the sliding bookshelf. It's really cool back there. Actually, it sounds nothing like that. I think there's a, a secret button that you push and the door swings open uh, completely silently, as I remember. That's where we, re- we recorded. And uh, we had a couple of nice drinks there as well. Among other things, Adam and I will talk about cocktails on draft. Also a little bit about wine knowledge for bartenders. Have enough knowledge for when a guest comes in that they don't care for a cocktail and they want to have a glass of wine to be able to navigate a, a little bit. Which leads us to our book of the week. Adam recommends Kevin Zarelli's Windows on the World Complete Wine Course. You'll hear him talk about it during the interview, so we'll make that our book of the week. You can find an Amazon link for that book uh, in the show notes over at Bar bartenderjourney.net. Anytime you use one of those Amazon links on bartenderjourney.net helps out the show just a little bit. Doesn't cost you any extra and, and anything you bought, anything you buy during that sort of session uh, after clicking through will help out the show a little bit. Another great way to support this show is through our Patreon campaign. Please visit our Patreon page and consider supporting Bartender Journey with a small monthly pledge. You can go, uh, you can find the information at bartenderjourney.net slash Patreon. And then that, from there, you can click through to Patreon and um, set that up if you like. Thanks for considering doing that. We went to a really interesting seminar this week. Dale DeGroff gave the talk called I'll Take Manhattan. It was sponsored by Woodford Reserve. Dale used the Woodford Reserve rye to make a big batch of Manhattans, but he didn't add any bitters to it. Then we each had five small portions of Manhattan in front of us and five small portion cups of uh, five different bitters, five different brands of aromatic bitters. We went through and smelled each of the bitters and added a couple drops of each into each of our Manhattans, that is. So now we have five identical Manhattans with except for the bitters which is the only variable there we tasted through them all and talked about what we smelled and tasted you'd be amazed how how different each of these tasted like i said the drinks were exactly identical all from the same batch except we added the different bitters the angostura aromatic bitters were first actually of of the five and um of the five they're actually the least bitter believe it or not of the ones that we had with, with us which uh interestingly made that manhattan seem to be the sweetest just like sour balances is the sweet and a daiquiri or a margarita. Bitter does the same thing. So we tasted down the line. They were all different brands of aromatic bitters, including Dale's uh, DeGroff aromatic bitters, the Bitter bitter Truth, and a couple others I can't remember at the moment. Dale's a great storyteller and also a big fan of jazz. I won't steal the story he used to wrap up the seminar, but his point in all of this was to show how you don't have to put a ton of ingredients into the cocktail and use all kinds of obscure stuff just put the right ingredients into your drink. So our cocktail of the week will be the Manhattan, but not just one Manhattan. I'd like you I'd like you to try an experiment like this for yourself. Let's have you make at least two Manhattans with two different kinds of aromatic bitters. And then you can even split that up again and try two different garnishes for each. So here's my, here's my plan. <laughs> Take uh, Make a batch of Manhattans uh, with no bitters. So you can do uh, two to one whiskey of your choice. Use uh, two parts of that Woodford Reserve rye if you can. Then uh, one part of bread or sweet vermouth. Uh, 
or you can do as Dale did. He he made a uh, he used these proportions: four parts rye, one point five part of Dolan red vermouth, and 0.75 Dolan white vermouth. So that's um, sort of a you know if you if you do equal. If you do the same amount of red and dry, right, that's called a uh, perfect Manhattan. Uh, he, he changed that uh, up a little bit. So he did four parts rye, 1.5 parts of red vermouth, 0.75 white vermouth. Uh, stir that with ice until very cold, then strain into four glasses and uh, add one type of bitters to the first two and then a different bitter to the second two. Then, two, then do two different garnishes, so a cherry and an orange Twist are the most popular um, in, a, in a Manhattan, right? I happen to really love my Manhattans with a lemon twist. Of course, expressing the oils from the citrus is the key. So using a Y peeler is the best way to make a twist where you can express the oils really well from uh, over the top of the drink. I was uh, training a young bartender once and she took the lemon and purposely went away from the glass, from the drink, while twisting the peel and then dropped that into the drink. I said, no, that's the whole idea of the twist, to get the oils from the skin into the drink. Anyway, use the Y peeler to cut your twist. Uh, myself and a lot of other bartenders do that to order for freshness. Um, then put it between your thumb and index finger and pinch it slowly to spray the oils into the drink. You can, uh, if you want a fun party trick, hold a match or a lighter and express express the oils through, through the flame. It flares up for a second like a magic trick. If you do this over your drink, it will, of course, give the drink a little different flavor. Dale revived that trick in the 80s when he was running the bar program at the Rainbow Room. Uh, it was reportedly invented by a bartender named Pepe Ruiz in Beverly Hills for the Flame of Love cocktail created for Dean Martin. Uh, but anyway, that, that's a fun trick. Oh, also after expressing the oils, you know, uh, it's good to rub the uh, rim of the glass with that with that twist as well. And um, some people even rub the uh, stem of the glass and uh, they say that, that, you know, now the, the oils are on your fingers and it's even more interesting experience. So that's uh, something to think about. It makes makes it maybe a little sticky, but <laughs> it, it does, uh, you know, it, it can enhance the experience. Anyway, so the point of all this is to show how one small change to a cocktail can really make a big difference. I think it also points out just how important every single ingredient in that drink, it, you know, is to the final drink. Uh, if a couple of drops of bitters make such a big difference, how about different brands of rum, for instance, in your drink, uh, depending on, I mean, not, not for Manhattan, but if you're, if you're maybe coming up with an original, original cocktail and, um, depending on what you're making, the rum might be the most plentiful ingredient in that cup. Plus rum in particular has so many different styles and different taste profiles. So, uh, you can't say, Oh, any rum will do. No, that's, uh, they're all, vastly different from each other. So I encourage you to experiment and in particular experiment with doing different uh, with doing identical versions of drinks but vary just one thing and not just switching one ingredient for another when creating original cocktails you might want to vary the amount of one of the ingredients. Stay curious my friends. All right let's talk to Adam Seeger. Well we're here with Adam Seeger in the tuck room amazing place and uh thanks for thanks for having us and welcoming us in it's well great. it is an absolute pleasure it was so so fun to take you back in here uh into our green room kind of our little secret speakeasy uh behind the bookcase and and now it's fun to fun to chat and, and talk bartender journey yeah this is an amazing space so so what happens is the, you push a secret button and this bookcase opens up and we're in this little speakeasy room that's just amazing. Right, so the Scooby-Doo wall, yeah. we like to call it. <laughs> when I get rich, I'm building one a room just like this with a secret bookcase. Oh, absolutely. And a, and a slide that goes down to the... 
<laughs> slide that goes down to the exit. Even and better. So, so you, uh, this room you use for um, private events and things? or Well, we, we do private events, but we also do quite a few premieres, uh, movie premieres, as uh, downstairs from the Tuck Room or IPIC theaters. And they're luxury movie theaters that offer craft cocktails and, and a beautiful wine list and, and chef-curated food. And so we uh, created this to give a little bit of privacy and intimacy for uh, directors, celebrities, and whatnot uh, when they're, they're doing red carpet screenings. And then also on nights that we're not doing those, it's, it's a fun little hidden gem to come enjoy a, a very civilized cocktail. It really is. And you have some beautiful bottles over there, I see. <laughs> well, the, it's been fun curating the spirits. We're, we're right here in the Seaport District, uh, which, uh, looking right out the window from where we are, we're looking at actually the oldest warehouse in New York City. And so back in the 1800s, when this was the main seaport, pretty much every box of gunpowder or cognac or sugarcane or rum or anything came through this warehouse right across the street from us, the seaport. So we've kind of latched on to Navy strength gins and Navy strength rums, uh, really taking that rich tradition of the seaport and uh, having people be able to, after a couple of imbibing cocktails, kind of imagine that they're in, in old New York looking over the, the cobblestone. Well, uh, it's such a historic place. And then, I mean, the, the fish market used to be here until... Well, I guess it's long ago now, but when I was growing up, not to give away my age, all the all the seafood in the in the region came through right over here. It, like it right over there, I can see it. <laughs> it it did actually. The uh, the old tin building uh, right across the street from us, Jean George von Gerichten, is opening a fish market uh, this next spring, and then the building that we're in now, the 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 main market was downstairs. And I remember coming to the market as a kid with my mom. And seeing the, the famous chefs coming from the four-star restaurants and picking up their fish for the Poisson du Jour. And, and uh, so I've got these wonderful memories. And then Sherry Yard, who opened uh, the Tuck Room and is our chief operating officer, but also was our opening, uh, created all of our menus. Her grandfather was a fishmonger at the Fulton Fish Market. So it's, it's, it's a place that's really close to our hearts. And, uh, oh, I don't want to get sidetracked too much, but we were looking at your men. The menus are very elaborate and beautiful, and, and we were just talking about how much work that is to put, to put together a menu that looks like that. Well, thank you. It put a lot of, a lot of love into it. Uh, you know, we're, we're right around the corner from Dead Rabbit and Blacktail, so the bar was set quite high in the neighborhood, and uh, we put a lot of uh, love and thought and care into it, and we're really inspired by what, uh, what Blacktail and, and Dead Rabbit have done to elevate lower Manhattan as far, a, far as the cocktail scene, and also to really just respect that uh, this was the beginning of New York City, was Lower Manhattan, and this is uh, really where cocktail culture started in the city. Uh, Jerry Thomas's bar was just up the street at uh, Fulton and Broadway from us uh, at the basement of the P.T. Barnum Museum uh, back up until 1852. So, you know, there's a lot of rich karma around all this, and, and we wanted to, to really go, go all in. That's great. And so, so you, you actually deliver cocktails down into the movie theater. How we do. So cool is that? literally you, you kick back, you've got a, uh, a pillow and a blanket, you've got a fully reclining leather chair, you've got a call button. Uh, we call our servers ninjas, they're dressed in black, they're very stealth. And any point in the movie you want a, another cocktail, another lobster roll, a glass of champagne, you press your button, your ninja comes, delivers it. And we design the theaters in a way that uh, your ninja will never walk in front of a sight line of the screen. And so you can be enjoying a, a, a fine cocktail uh, while watching your favorite movie. That's great. So your history, you, you worked as a, a, you're a sommelier as well, right? 
Right. My yeah. background was uh, more in wine and, and fine dining. I worked at, at French Laundry, at Chez Julien in Strasbourg, at True in Chicago. Well, don't just gloss over that. You worked at French Laundry. Come on. <laughs> that was amazing. And actually, there's not a day that goes by that there's not something that Thomas had influenced me with his teachings that doesn't affect how I approach everything. Uh, really, uh, predominantly with ingredients, there's, there's a, almost a cult-like religious respect of ingredients of the French Laundry. And not only the ingredients, but the respect of the, the, the preparation of them. And that's something that I take into cocktails in particular and, and spend so much time trying to meet not only the distillers, the brewers, the winemakers who make the alcohol, but also the farmers who grow our apples for our, our big apple margarita or the farm stands that we go and we get our honey and our maple syrup and really understanding where those ingredients are coming from and then having an added level of respect for them because you know how much hard work and, and, and labor and, and love went into them. So that's something that uh, gift that Thomas gave me that goes into really everything I approach. Amazing. What was I reading just the other day? Something about how, you know, um, years ago, cocktails were not, uh, you know, taken, there wasn't too much thought put into them, even, you know, even in high-end restaurants. And, and, and the food, of course, you know, the ingredients were key and, you know, served the best stuff. And then, you know, you order a gin and tonic and it comes with a brown lime that was cut three days ago. And, it, you know, it's, it's so great to see these days how far we've come just in the last, you know, 10 years even. It's it's really remarkable, and and actually it's 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 very interesting looking at history and sort of this evolution of what's brought us to here now. Um, if if you look at James Beard's one of his first cookbooks, which was on hors d'oeuvres and entertaining, he has several cocktail recipes in that, and that's we're looking at fifty fifty five years ago, and of course there's took a long time for for that to come to the point of of uh, Dale DeGroff creating the, the beautiful cocktail list that he did at, at the, the Rainbow Room under the direction of Joe Baum, and, and then finally Dave Wondrich translating uh, these original 1800s cocktail recipes and figuring out what in the heck is a wine glass of, of whiskey and things like that so we could kind of recreate some of these things. So, um, you know, there's been a lot of things that have happened to, to bring us to where we are now. But uh, to me, I think right now is, is the most exciting time, any time in, in the history, to be, a, to be a bartender. And there's, there's so much that we have access to. And I think uh, new, new and young bartenders getting into this, that hopefully they realize that uh, it's, it's amazing now to be able to have access to so many small batch products and so many different bitters and so many great ingredients and so many incredible bar tools and the internet, the, all the information that's out there that, that uh, those who really kind, kind of came before us had, had to really go and find some dusty old books. I, I remember Dale telling me about when Joe Baum had said, I, I want you to do a classic cocktail list, and you need to go and get uh, Jerry Thomas's book. And Dale didn't know who the heck Jerry Thomas was. No one really knew except for Joe Baum was such a, so, so brilliant. And... He's going to the bookstores, and it's been out of print for years and years and years. And he finally finds it's this written in the 1800s, <laughs> right? He finally finds an antique uh, version of it. And so, um, where now there's so many amazing blogs, there's so many amazing podcasts, there's so so many amazing books and seminars and classes. Uh, I just hope that uh, that people bartending now, of just getting into it, realize how how lucky we are now, 
And I think that helps to elevate the whole industry. It really does. And and it's great to to have those resources wherever you are that you can you can go on the internet and get these resources. But but going to events like, you know, Tales of the Cocktail and other events just I think really elevates when you're when you're in that community of people that are just so passionate about the same thing that you are. Oh, it really it really is. I, I think we always talk about kind of nerding out about uh, cocktails and bitters and procedures and whatnot. But I think when you go to whether whether it was when they had Manhattan Cocktail Conference or Manhattan Cocktail Classic a few years ago, obviously Tales of the Cocktail, what they've done, Portland Cocktail Week, Arizona Cocktail Week, all these different ones, to go and have such a big group of people who as as passionate and nerdy about this as as you are, it's really rejuvenating. And then just the the generosity, I think, in this business of sharing information, sharing expertise, uh, with the uh, the mindset of that you want to raise the bar for the entire industry. I think that's that's one of the, the the best things about what we're doing now. And it's just the the people are so cool in this industry. <laughs> it is. I mean, we're you know you, you joke that we're not you know we're not landing on the moon, we're not saving saving yeah. lives and whatnot. But if you get a little spiritual with some of the teachings from Gary Regan, uh, he just talks about if. Every bartender, every day, goes and makes one customer's day a little bit brighter, a little bit happier, that bartenders can change the world. Bartenders can put so much karma out there in the world. And when you think about it that way, of, of we're really in, in the business of taking care of people, helping them to relax, helping them to indulge a little bit. We're sometimes that, that armchair psychologist behind the, the bar and whatnot. Um, you know, it's, it's a real gift to be able to, to have a positive effect in, in someone's day and, and then coming and having a cocktail experience and, and just having that be a bright light, a real personal connection with another human being after uh, all the crazy things going on in the world today. It's so true. And it's, and it's interesting from a, a I've, I've spoken to a lot of bartenders that have sort of had a, um, you know, maybe they're little shy or they're, um, you know, they have the social anxiety kind of thing, but they, but they always say the same thing. When I get behind the bar, it's a, it's a whole different, um, thing for me. You know, I, I come out of my shell when I'm behind the bar. And I think that's really fascinating. It, it really is. That's so interesting because I, you take someone like, let's say Emeril Lagasse, who you see him on TV and he's so outgoing and, and rambunctious and fun. And he's actually quite introverted, but when he gets in his zone in the kitchen, He's he's alive, and and I think when you step behind the bar, when you're behind the stick, that's that's your area, that's your zone. You're you're comfortable and confident, and I think it is a really great way for someone to go and express their personality, and not only their personality but their creativity, and from start to finish to really be curating that whole guest experience. Not only what they're drinking, but the way they're welcome, the way they're entertained, the way that that they feed on each other's energy to, to create a great experience. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, tell us about your training program here. We were, we were sitting there for a few minutes with the young, very nice gentleman, Ryan, who seems like a fairly, fairly young guy, but well-trained and uh, well-spoken. And uh, so can, what, what can you, how can you enlighten us a little bit about, about your training program here and how, to, how, to, how bartenders should be trained? Well, absolutely. The, the, the gentleman who made uh, your Negroni was, uh, began here as a barback. And uh, we opened uh, not quite a year and a half ago, but coming up on, on that. And since we've opened, we have not hired a single bartender. Wow. Uh, we've had a number of bartenders who've been promoted into supervisor and management positions. They've, they've gone and, and uh, transferred to other uh, restaurants and theaters within our company as we've been growing and whatnot. And so what we've done for each bartender that's left, we've taken our strongest bar pack and tr- promoted them into a bartender. 
And it's been a really, really wonderful way to create a culture of obviously promotion from within. And so the barbacks know that there is a, a, a journey for them, uh, both financially and also kind of the big deal. We, we take a lot of inspiration from employees only where, where they have the, the jacket for the bartenders. What we do is we have black suspenders for the barbacks. And when they get certified as a bartender, they get red suspenders. And we make a, a, a big kind of dorky deal about it at pre-shift and whatnot. But you really see that day they come in with the red suspenders. There's that, that, that sense of pride, pride there. And so uh, that, that really helps of, of having that, that uh, promotion from within. But also, it's a way to have all those barbacks who become bartenders to train them with how we like things done, how to do things correctly from the beginning. We're not trying to break bad habits. We're, we're instilling uh, the proper way to do things from the beginning, and that's, that's all they know. And so it does take a, a lot of effort and energy from a training standpoint, but the, the rewards for it are absolutely incredible. It's quite an investment, isn't it, for a company to produce a great employee, whether it's a bartender or a server or whatever. There's a lot of, a lot of effort. A lot of, there's a big investment, whether financial and otherwise. There, there definitely is, and and the, the thing that you've got to be confident of, of there are times where you're going to put a huge investment into training and developing someone, and they're ready to grow wings, and, and maybe they, they have another opportunity outside of your company. And so I think a way to look at it, uh, Ken Blanchard used to teach us years ago, of what's the worst thing than spending all this money and training someone and having them leave? Well, it's not training them and having them stay. <laughs> So if you look at it that way, <laughs> yes, you know sometimes you're going to invest a lot, and 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 they are going to go 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 their own, own way, but um, it's not nearly as as costly as as, as not training them and, and not having the culture. <laughs> That's a great point. <laughs> That's funny. Can you tell us uh, about your cocktail menu? How do you, how do you how do you approach it? How do you how often do you change it? And um, how how do you come up with such a big curated menu? It's a, it's a lot. Well, it's an interesting bar in that when you add the chuck room along to the movie theaters, particularly, let's say, uh, on a busy night when the theaters are all sold out, we're really an 800-seat bar because we seat 550 in the theaters and then we've got another 180 in the chuck room and another 21 in the green room. In the summertime, we add a patio as well, which adds a whole other dimension. And so what we've done is we've We've taken the, the previous 14 IPIC theaters that we've opened, and, and we've run our product mix on them. And so we, we knew what would be our biggest selling cocktails for kind of the masses coming in, who weren't necessarily coming in for the, the curated bespoke cocktail. And so those cocktails, those top four selling cocktails are on draft. So for instance, uh, we do a, um, a regional margarita for every location. So here it's a big apple margarita. It's raw apple cider from the farmer's market, local apples, bourbon barrel age, tequila, and, uh, of course, fresh sour mix. And that is put in a 20-liter stainless steel keg and pushed with nitrogen and CO2. So totally consistent, totally fast, and literally it's as, as fast to make a house margarita as it is to pour a beer. So we've engineered that with those top four cocktails. Um, the next two best-selling cocktails we bottle. And so that makes up about 80% of our sales. And we're able to get extremely busy very quickly and get those drinks out quite consistently. That then buys us a great deal of time. So, for instance, uh, when you order an old-fashioned, it's hand-cut ice. And uh, I, I, I love 
so many bars have spent so much time bringing back a proper ice program. And it's really, you can't open a serious cocktail bar in America without having a proper ice program. It's just, it, it, it's to the point of, it's just not, not heard of. And so we've kind of brought it out front and created what we call our ice DJ station. And so we cut the ice right in front of the guests. So they, they engage the guests and, and, and people are always asking, they see this big, gorgeous 50 pound block of Kleinbell ice and they ask about it. And, and we explain that when you hand cut ice like that, because it's so clear, because there's no air in there, there's no impurities, your ice melts more slowly, your cocktail stays cold for so much longer, then all of a sudden there's this, there's this conversation. And so by engineering these high-volume drinks by the bottle or by draft, it gives us time to then hand-cut an and, and ice cube for an old-fashioned. And then the other item that we do that's great fun is, is our Heisenberg. That's our, our Japanese infusion tower. And uh, traditionally used to make amazing cold brew coffee, uh, but instead we put liquor on the top and liquid nitrogen, botanicals in the middle, and let the spirit basically gravity infuse down. Um, and we do two of those a night. They change every day. So we have a uh, library of now about 140 to 145 different original infusions we've done in there. And so that allows our cocktail list to literally be alive, and every day there's something new happening. And it's, it's not for every guest, but the, you, we, we get that 80%. Uh, they're thrilled with a, with a consistent, delicious, fresh margarita or a sangria on draft or, or Fulton House Punch, which is like a 19th century fish house punch on draft. We also do a fresh strawberry lemonade spiked with a lemon berry infused vodka. So, you know, those workhouses kind of take care of the guests. Just, they want to come in and we want, they want to get a fresh cocktail fast. But then the guest who is curious and says, hey, what is this crazy contraption with booze dripping through it? And they're pouring liquid nitrogen on the top of it. It then engages the guests in a conversation. How, how does the... Um I have no experience with with uh, cocktails on draft. How do you how do you fill those kegs and how do you keep it all clean? And it's been a, a really interesting journey because one would think you take your perfect margarita recipe from a, a ratio standpoint and you just multiply it fifty times and put it in a keg. What you have to keep in mind are a number of things. One, dilution. So our cocktail is coming out at 30 deg 38 degrees Fahrenheit um, because it's, it's chilled with glycol just like our, our beers. And so you're not going to get the same dilution with ice melting of a traditional margarita where you have a room temperature bottle of tequila going with... Pouring it over ice. Exactly, exactly. Ice so um, you've got to figure out what is going to be the right dilution so when it comes out of draft right on ice that it's going to be the perfect balance between the tequila... And your fresh sour mix, your 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 spirits, anything else that you put in your margarita recipe, that's one. But the the other one that gets a little bit interesting is uh, traditionally use a little bit of CO two to push your your draft cocktails as well. CO two contains carbonic acid, which is actually an acid. You need to think about it like lemon and lime. So as those those cocktails stay in those kegs and stay in the line, they're going to be absorbing a little bit of that that carbonic acid. And it's going to take more sugar in a draft cocktail for it to taste balance than if you just made one to order. So it's a little bit of trial and error. Uh, and then you're, you're dealing with 20-liter recipes with, you know, a case plus of really good booze. So yeah. uh, <laughs> You don't want to mess it up. <laughs> right. So that's, that's, been, that's, that's been real interesting. We've, you don't want to mess it up, but you can't taste it because it's going to taste different on the other end. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so we, we've gotten it down to, uh, to a, it started as an art and now we've got it down to a little bit more of a science. 
Um, but it, it is, uh, there are some moving parts to it. Uh, but once you kind of get that done, it is a way to have, do volume craft. Right, right. And, and how long will it stay fresh in the keg? Well, it's, it's, ref it's refrigerated and dark. So you've got those two items going for you. But and no, we all know lemon juice won't stay forever in, or lime juice won't stay forever. And, in, in you know, even if it's refrigerated and dark, you know, it, it goes bad after a while. But I guess. Right. Well, we're doing something really interesting with our, our lemon juice and lime juice. Uh, we're working with a company called Ripe and, and they do uh, all cold pressed juice, but they are pressure pasteurized. So if you think of even lemon juice or lime juice that, say, you get from your produce company and they come refrigerated and you think they're fresh, they've been pasteurized with heat and they have that horrible flavor to them. So when you cold-press juice, which would just be like you're taking lemon or lime off your bar and the afternoon your bar back is, is squeezing a case of limes, that's cold-pressed. And that's when you have that delicious, vibrant juice. And so we found this company that does cold-press, and what they do is and then they use pressure on the lemon and lime juice and that kills a great deal of the bacteria that would normally cause those, that lemon and lime juice to oxidize. And then, of all things, it goes in, in a five-gallon box. First time I saw it, I thought, I'm, I'm not going to use lemon juice out of a box. That's crazy. But it's literally cold-pressed, pressure-pasteurized juice. And uh, we put a little like tap one of those, on it. Like one of those wine-in-a-box kind of things? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so when it comes out... The bag deflates as it comes out, just like a wine in a box. And so there's no air to it until we put it in a deli or a recipe. And so uh, we find between the volume of the draft cocktails, uh, the, the quality of lemon and lime juice that's, that's, that's cold-pressed, and when that's immediately combined with your spirits, which are also a natural preservative, and the, the sh sugar and bitter com component, um, and the volume of what we do, we have not had any freshness is issues with them. Right, right. No, I, I know you do very high volume here. I'm just, for my own program, I'm trying to figure out how to preserve that juice and, and maybe batch things uh, up ahead ahead of time so that they're faster and more consistent. Um, so I'm just trying to figure out the best way to, you know, the, the fresh lime juice is magical, you know, but it's, it's, it's hard to keep, keep it. Yeah, I'd say the best way to do it is, is just know that lime juice is the, your fastest to oxidize juice. And so even if, uh, even if you're putting your juice into, let's, let's say, into big Ziploc bags, that you can push that extra air in out. So at the end of the night, instead of having, say, a half deli or half store and pour of lime juice, it's in a plastic bag where you've gotten the air out. You'll find that it's going to taste much, much fresher the next day. As long as, long as you can keep air away from lime juice, that's, that's its biggest enemy. Well, great. This is, uh, it's amazing that you do such high volume. I mean, it's awe-inspiring. <laughs> Thank you. And it really, literally everything we do to engineer is with the inset of the guest that comes in and that wants to have an experience. They want to have a bespoke cocktail. They want to have something that's unique to their mood at that moment. Everything we do to engineer is so that we have time to do that. It's, it's like we just want it. That's, that's where you have the most fun, the most joy, the most connections with a guest. You create something really, really create a memory. And so it's literally, it's engineering of, let's figure out these efficiencies so we have as much time as possible to connect with those guests and create those experiences. And you, you have a vermouth brand, is that right? Or I do, I do. Yeah. With, uh, we're, we'll be launching in Chicago and New York in March, uh, and it's called Balsam, uh, which is kind of fun. Balsams are a, 
a category of medicinal spirits that go back to 18th century Europe. And there's about 21 brands in Europe. The only one that I've really seen in the U.S. is called uh, Riga Black Balsam. And uh, if you've got uh, a friend with a Latvian grandmother, they probably have a bottle underneath their, 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 their sink somewhere. But they're very high-proof, extremely bitter, intense medicinal spirits, kind of uh, a precursor to Amaro's. And uh, they, they started to become in vogue right around the time when vermouth did become in vogue as a way to ingest wormwood, which was a, a way to, to deal with um, all kinds of parasites and things like that. And so uh, we, we adopted this, this name balsam because of those intertwinings with the, the history of vermouth from a medicinal standpoint. So uh, we're, we're making the wine, uh, we're making the vermouth actually upstate New York. We're using all New York State brandy. We're using... Uh, New York State wines, and then we're using botanicals for my business partner's uh, business, which is rare tea cellar. Uh, so he he sources really the finest exotic botanicals from around the world, direct from uh, farms and producers. And so uh, we're uh, doing a kind of a, a bartender curated vermouth of sorts that uh, we're, we're really excited to bring to the market. So we had a uh, Negroni outside, which was delicious, and Hazel's going, "Why is this?" so delicious. I said, I, I think it's the vermouth because I, it was Capari and Beefeater and some vermouth in a bottle without a label that I didn't recognize. And I think it's right. the vermouth making this Negroni really special. <laughs> right. So that's that's the balsam vermouth uh, that uh, that's kind of the the, the 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 house version that we're doing that will actually yeah. be coming out commercially. And, right. and we're using beautiful brandy that's copper pot still distilled and, and all kinds of rare teas from rare tea cellar. Wormwood, of course, blood orange, vanilla, cinnamon, and then uh, we're using a, a single vineyard Blaufrankisch, which is kind of a Pinot Noir-like light, uh, light and supple red uh, that we're getting from a, a vineyard upstate, and um, we're just, just excited. Right? It'll be also in a 375 mil bottle with a Stelvin screw top, uh, because we want as many people to understand that vermouth, at the end of the day, it's a wine. And if you keep your vermouth in, if you buy it in half bottles, you're going to go through it twice as fast. It's going to be twice as fresh. Keep it in the cooler like your wines by the glass. If you hit nitrogen or vacuvan on your, your wines by the glass at night, do the same thing with your vermouth. You'd be amazed how much better your Manhattans and your Negronis are. Oh, so the last thing I wanted to ask you was um, bartenders, uh, especially uh, sort of craft bartenders, don't put a lot of focus on, on wine knowledge, you know. And uh, you as a sommelier, I wish, I wish you could give some thoughts on, you know, what bartenders, some basics on what bartenders should focus on as far as wine knowledge you know obviously we're not, not going to spend you know we're not going to the sommelier level but we want to know a little something well <laughs> I, I think if you get one book it's kevin zarelli's windows on the world complete wine book it is it is an amazing reference because you can have extremely little wine knowledge and you can read this book and it makes sense but also it's robust enough that it works as a great reference and brushing up if you did have uh, more robust wine knowledge or we're kind of revisiting it. I did. It, it really, Kevin, Kevin was uh, beverage director at, at Windows in the World and was really one of the first wine educators to take the pretense out of wine, make it fun, make it exciting, make it understandable. And I, I, I encourage any, anyone behind the stick to, to pick that book up and have a, enough knowledge for when a guest comes in that they don't care for a cocktail and they want to have a glass of wine uh, to be able to navigate a, a little bit. And, and it's also, I think, something that helps your bartending because as you learn the balance in wines, the balance between the acid and the fruit and the tannins, 
it's very much like evaluating and building a proper cocktail. And it can, it can help your palate and can also, I think, improve your cocktails, as well as being knowledgeable that there's a lot of trends going towards lower ABV cocktails. You're seeing, starting seeing more and more wine-based cocktails. You're starting to see more aperitif wines and vermouths and uh, sparkling wines and cocktails. And so it's important that bartenders have that basic wine knowledge, at least that they're conversant. They're not afraid to talk about it because it is something that uh, consumers are looking for more and more. And it's a great way to have that, that extra lower ABV very complex, very balanced ingredient go into your cocktails. Yeah, yeah. And I think it also helps, you know, if you if you go to wine events, you'll hear similar terms, you know, when, when we're tasting whiskey, say, you know, somebody says, oh, I taste, you know, chocolate, I taste this and that. And I think, I think that uh, will help expand your vo- vocabulary as well to, to hear these wine terms that people use, and you can relate it to uh, spirits as well. It, it definitely does. And, and now I'm seeing more of my sommelier colleagues starting to dabble in cocktails a bit. Uh, because they're finding that even at, at uh, fine dining restaurants that normally shunned cocktails and spirits, saying, oh, that's going to destroy your palate. Uh, you're seeing chefs who are understanding how a beautiful cocktail can just open up uh, a guest's mind and palate for a great evening. And so now it's kind of forcing some sommeliers who are only those, those, those in, the, in the wine world to kind of venture into the cocktail world. And so now I think it's appropriate for bartenders to venture a little bit in the wine world, blur those lines a little bit. Because ultimately, it's gonna it's gonna elevate your guest experience, but also it's going to elevate your level of professionalism and, and what you can do for your guest. That's right, and and like we were talking about before we started recording, you know, the the, the wine uh, resurgence sort of almost fueled the craft cocktail movement that we've seen over the last you know ten decade or so. It it really did. You you saw first it started with chefs and farm to table, and then it it started to affect cocktails and being fresh and seasonal. And then you had the consumers starting to elevate from wine coolers to White Sinvidal and White Sinvidal to Sauvignon Blanc. And now they're drinking Sancerre and Pinot Noir and all these things. Now you've seen the, the cocktail journey happen of, of guests get more and more savvy. So it makes sense. As our guests get smarter, we as bartenders need to get smarter. We need to do that R&D and a little bit more reading and, and tasting. Plus, heck, it's, it's fun. It's yeah. fun. <laughs> it is. The only problem with drinking good wine is you get spoiled real quick. <laughs> you do, you do, and you have to remember to spit. <laughs> right, that too. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, it's it's af- after that eighth or ninth taste, everything kind of tastes the same. So yeah. it's just like you know what, but just like we're professionals and we're tasting whiskeys and spirits and whatnot. Uh, uh, everyone thinks, oh, all you do is just just drink all day. And it's like, well, you know, it, after. Uh, tasting a number of things and, and spitting them out, it's, you know, it's, it's, you're really thinking, you're concentrating. It's, uh, it's work. It's a wonderful job to have, but uh, it's, it's, it's not all, all, all sitting back and, and just drinking it. There, there, there's a little bit of uh, discipline to it. <laughs> a lot of discipline necessary. Well, um, thanks. This has been amazing. Thank and, you. Uh, My pleasure. A great, great conversation. Absolutely. It's a pleasure having you back and look forward to uh, returning often and build, bending your elbow at uh, Tuck Room and also check out a movie downstairs and, and uh, combining the cocktail experience with something on the big screen. I have to try that.
Absolutely. <laughs> Cheers. Oh, Cheers. So if you're ever in downtown Manhattan, go see Adam at the Tuck Room. I think you'll be impressed. I haven't done, uh, I haven't seen a movie there yet, but I think it sounds like a lot of fun, and you can get a good cocktail while you're watching your movie there. So stand by for our toast. We have some good guests coming up on the show, uh, including a really interesting guy that does advertising and marketing strictly for bars and restaurants. His name is Michael Delaroso, and his company is Union Square Advertising. He's really not. He's super knowledgeable about social media and I think you'll learn a lot. Uh, That'll probably be in two weeks. Uh, Hey, if you like this show, please tell a friend. Also, follow Bartender Journey on Instagram. Uh, You can find the show notes and other resources on the web at bartenderjourney.net. Thanks for listening. My name is Brian Weber and uh, feel free to get in contact. You can go to um, bartenderjourney.net slash contact or uh, you can email me directly at brian at bartenderjourney.net. All right, Here's our toast. Don't walk in front of me, I may not follow. Don't walk behind me, I may not lead. Walk beside me and be my friend. Cheers, we'll see you next time on the Bartender Journey Podcast. There's a song in our hearts. Happy days are here again.